You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's pastor to middle adults, Joe Cook. Well, if you've spent much time around children or young people, you may have noticed something on occasion, maybe not your children, because I know yours are, are special, But occasionally, children can be a little me-centric, a little self-centered. Maybe you've picked up on that. And it happens. I was a school teacher for 20 years, so I I taught all ages from kindergarten through high school over that 20-year period. I spent a lot of time around kids, and I was a youth pastor for a while, and I, I noticed it occasionally. As a parent, as an uncle, maybe, maybe you've noticed it too. You know what? Who can blame them? When they're born, what do we do when they cry? We feed them. What do we do when they cry? We cuddle them. We care for them. From their perspective, the world does revolve around them, doesn't it? And it's a rude awakening as they grow up and they start to find out it doesn't. This past week, I saw a cartoon, and it was this loving mother looking down at this beautiful little boy, and he's got his backpack on it for school, and she looks at him, and I'm sure in a very tender voice, she says, I'm sorry you're mad, you just found out the world doesn't revolve around you. And then the next line was, here, let me pour you a tall glass of get over it. Now, that's harsh, isn't it? I know none of you mothers would have ever, ever said that, but you've thought it. I've thought it a few times too. You know, this this me-centric idea, this self-centeredness, we all deal with it. It comes off in layers. It even extends into our adult life. I have to deal with it too. You know when I deal with it the most? It's when I hurt. When I'm hurting, whether it's physical or it may be some other type of trial that's bringing pain into my life, pain has a way of being right here. And it gets a lot of focus, and I want one thing. I want the pain, the problem, the trial to go away. That's what I want. So I can be a little me-centric. I can be a little self-focused. And sometimes that gets me into trouble. Sometimes it gets you into trouble too. We're going to pick up in David's life at probably one of the lowest points of his life that we have seen so far. And and last week, Nolan took us through his dealing with this rebellion of his son Absalom. So I'm going to ask you to go to 2 Samuel Chapter 19 is where we're going to pick up today. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we have some available at the back. As you turn there, I'm going to remind you what happened last week is David's, one of David's sons, Absalom, he has taken up the sword against his father. He is going to take the throne. He has declared war on his family, basically, and he is, he is through intrigue and through other types of things, he's created a a group of people that are supporting him in this, to the point that David has to flee his throne room. He has to flee Jerusalem. And then where we, where we left off last week is David has just found out that his son Absalom is dead. And David is a father. Look at, back up just one verse at chapter 18 and look at verse 33 with me. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, 
my son, my son. Can you hear the pain of a father? Do you see how many times he repeated my son, my son? His heart's breaking. The loss of a child is a a terrible grief. Some of you know what that is, and the rest of us, we pull back in horror of even even imagining that. It's not a place anybody wants to go. And look how far it's pushed him. He would rather die. He wishes he were dead. Have you been to that place in your life where you despaired even of life? Maybe you're there now. Hopefully today, as we walk through this passage of Scripture and we we look at some other Scriptures, you're going to find something to reach out and grab a hold of. David is going to do that today. You see, David is going to find out David, you're part of something bigger. He's going to have to have a little slap in the face like our cartoon with our mom who said it's not all about you. Someone's going to come along and say that to David, but he's going to grasp the vision that he's part of something bigger and he's going to find some power in that. And I hope that each of us can find some power in that as well to deal with the difficult trials that many of you are facing. Let's see how his sorrow impacts the people. Look at 19. Let's read the first few verses there. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping, and he's mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning, for all the people had heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. Verse verse 4, The king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. He's in despair. He's in grief. It's right here in his face, and that's all he can see. And the people are watching him. You know, when you're hurting and you're in pain, people watch. Your children watch. And and David has people watching him, and it's impacting them. It's impacting them negatively. David's reality is he's a father and he's lost his son. But you know what? The nation has a reality too. This group of people who have supported him and, and, and uh, gathered around him to help him, they've risked a lot. Think about it. You had to choose size, Absalom or David, the old guy or the new guy. Which, which way are we going to go? And the people that stayed with David... They risked their lives, their property, and their status. And David, David is grieving. And yet their reality is they've won a victory because Absalom was a rebel. He threatened the stability of the nation. He threatened the life of his own father. Their reality is they see that, that a rebel is taken away. It's a great day. But all David sees is that he's lost a son. So these two realities are clashing. But I want you to look now with me at how one of his, we'll call him a comrade, I think we're using that term loosely, we're going to look at Joab, we're going to talk a little bit about their relationship. Look at verse 5 with me. General Joab, General Joab came into the house to the king and he said, you have today covered with shame the faces of your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines And because you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you, for you have made it clear today to the commanders and the servants are nothing to you for today. I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Ouch. 
Absalom doesn't mess around. I mean, uh, Joab doesn't mess around, does he? He kind of goes straight for the jugular with David. There's another, there's a commentator who rephrased Joab's words, and I think we need to realize this was a slap in the face. We thought the mother was harsh. Joab really goes after David. Let's look at how uh, David Guzik says this. Joab gave David a stern wake-up call. David, your excessive mourning is selfish. It isn't all about you. Hmm. These loyal, sacrificial supporters of yours deserve to feel good about their victory, and you're making them feel terrible. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. It's a pretty good characterization of what Joab said, isn't it? And remember who Joab is? This is this dysfunctional relationship David has had all through this narrative. Joab has caused him all kinds of trouble. At this point, David doesn't even know that Joab is the one who killed his son Absalom. The relationship's going to get worse. It hasn't ever been good. But the reason Joab's still the general is he literally knows where all the bodies are buried. If you've been following along, Joab was a co-conspirator in the killing of Uriah so that David could have Bathsheba. So it's this dysfunctional connection here. This is not a guy David likes. How would you respond? Think about this. You're at the lowest point of your life. You're despairing of living. And the person you like the least, can you picture him? I know you've got somebody you, maybe you don't like the best, okay? They come to you, and they're the ones that speak to you. They're the ones that give you the hard words. How would you respond? Would you be tempted to be defensive? Would you be tempted to say, hey, buddy, I'm the king. That was my son. I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. Well, sure you would. I bet David was tempted too. Joab's not finished yet. Look, look with me now at verse 7. He's going to give him some advice. And he's going to give him a warning. He says, Now therefore arise and go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear, here's the warning, I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So Joab tells him two things. He says, you need to get, this, you need to get straight. You need to get out there and speak kindly to these people because if you don't, it's going to be bad for you. And David, this is remarkable. David is going to take this even from Joab. The most impressive verse in this passage that we're going to look at is this next one. Look at verse 8 with me. Then the king arose and he took his seat in the gate and the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Wow. Wow. There's not a word of defensiveness. There's not a word of rebuttal. There's not an argument. There's not a debate. There doesn't cast Joab out. We have no record of any of that. This man who takes a rebuke from somebody he can't stand, he gets up, he washes his face, and he goes forward, and he takes care of his people. That, that is remarkable. You know what it is? It's emotional maturity. It's emotional maturity. And that's a remarkable thing. If you've ever seen it, <laughs> if you've ever watched it on display, emotional maturity is amazing. I was looking up to see a definition of that, and I found an explanation of it from the American Psychological Association. I want to share it with you this morning. They write this. 
Emotional maturity is a high, and that's an important word, the next one, appropriate level of emotion, emotional control and expression. Appropriate level of emotional control. This isn't about suppression. This isn't about denial. I spent three years as a hospice chaplain. When people are grieving, I always encourage them to be very intentional about their grief. But you know, if I was David's chaplain, I'd have to come alongside of him and say to him, David, Joab's right. Your grief doesn't give you an excuse to be unkind or irresponsible. They're not finished. They're going to contrast it with emotional immaturity. Let's look at that. Emotional immaturity is a tendency to express emotions without restraint, without restraint or disproportionate to the situation. In other words, they overreact or they let their emotions drive the train. David's not letting emotions drive the train. I want you to think, emotions are a good thing. Aren't you glad we have emotions? They add seasoning to life. And even when we're in sorrow, emotions are the things that allow us to express that sadness and sort of heal our soul. Emotions are good things. But have you noticed that emotions don't always tell the truth? Emotions aren't always the most honest thing that we have. David's emotions told him life's over. I might as well just give up. There's nothing worth living for. Yeah, there is, David. You have other children. You have other responsibilities. You're the king, David. And thank goodness that David moved into that and he took on that responsibility. He had the emotional maturity because we're blessed from all the things that happened after this point in David's life, as were his people. I love how John Seymour, uh, author, comments. He says, emotions make excellent servants, but they make tyrannical masters. Excellent servants, but tyrannical masters. We can't let emotions drive the train, because when emotions drive the train, they will get us into trouble. David could have spiraled into despair, and he could have spiraled into self-loathing, because you know what? He was not just grieving. He's also dealing with the consequences of his sin. We learned from Nolan last week that David contributed to this rebellion. David had caused a lot of dysfunction in his home. And so he, he's dealing with that too. Regrets, the sins of his past are coming forward to haunt him. And yet we see David. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't go angry. He doesn't try to, he doesn't try to take revenge on the man who's spoken truth to him. Instead, he demonstrates maturity. That's remarkable. His switch, you might say, was sort of flipped. He moved from being a victim to being a king. He moved from being a, kick, a victim to being a king. I can't get past verse 8. The king arose and he took his seat in the gate. Not the grieving father, not the moral failure, the king. You see, David, he remembered, oh yeah, I'm part of something bigger. I have some responsibilities. And here's what I'd like to say to you. Your past failures do not have to determine today's choices. Your pain doesn't have to determine today's choices. David, in spite of his past failures, in spite of his, in spite of his grief, he makes good choices. And what we're going to see from, from verse 9 through 43 to the end of the chapter is David's on his way back to the capital. He's on his way back to the throne and he's going to continue to do amazing things. Remember how low this point was, this valley? He's despairing even of death. We're going to see one of the most amazing transformations. 
and demonstrations of emotional maturity. As he moves back, he shows grace and mercy to the rebels, and he rewards those who have stood by him. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these passages. Well, last week, Nolan kind of highlighted this one character. His name was Shimei. And Shimei came out, and he cursed David. So we're going to look at how, how does David interact with this guy that threw curses at him. I wonder what that response would be like. Let's remember what, let's remember what Shimei said. Look at this. Come out. Come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you the blood of the house of Saul. He's not done. In whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. That was Shimei when David was running from his son. I wonder how he's going to respond when suddenly he meets David, who has now got the upper hand. Absalom's, Absalom's gone. David's going to be the king. So I'm going to invite you to look over at chapter, uh, in chapter 19. I want you to look at verse uh, 18 with me. So Shimei has heard that David is on his way back. And he's gone to meet him. He's like, ah, I need to do something here. Look at verse 18. And they crossed over to the ford to bring over the king's household and to, to do his pleasure. Now look at the next thing. And Shimei, the son of Gera, he fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not the Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day that, on the, I'm sorry, <clears throat> On the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord the king. He's begging for his life, and he should be. What would you expect an ancient warrior king to do to a guy that cursed him on his way out? Everybody else in the group is expecting this guy, this is his end. He's not going to make it. And you know what? David spares him, even though one of his generals, one of his leaders, is going to recommend that he do the opposite. Look at verse 21. Abishai, by the way, Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zerurai, answered, shall not, be put, shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zerurai? that you should this day be an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Now look at this last part. For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? I'm part of something bigger. That's what David remembered. It's not all about me. There's other people around here. David's got his crown on straight, we might say. Warren Wiersbe makes this comment about this scene. He says, but now his reason for sparing Shimei was because it was a day of rejoicing, not a day of revenge, but even more by pardoning Shimei, King David was offering a general amnesty to all who supported Absalom during the rebellion. Very wise. Have you ever noticed when you're in pain, it's kind of hard to think clear? This is even more <laughs> remarkable. We see a man who is was at his lowest point, and now he's thinking clearly. Now he's building bridges with those who rebelled against him. He could have taken vengeance. He could have been defensive. He could have said, how dare you rebel against me? And yet what we see 
as we see David acting like a servant king that he was called to be. A few weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel 5, or a number of weeks ago, and I got to teach through that passage, and there was a verse that has stuck out to me. David knew from the very beginning what he was called to do. In that section, what we see is David has now received the crown of the whole nation. And I want to remind you of what was said in that. After that crown was placed on his head, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. He knew that day, but here's something else he knew, and this is the important part. And he knew that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Why is he king? Is it for David's glory? Is it for David's comfort? Is it for David's pleasure? No. David, you're king because of these people. David's the first king that's ever referred to as the shepherd of Israel. And now he's going to act like the shepherd of Israel. He has his personal pain. He has this stuff that's right here. But he remembers, no, I'm part of something bigger. And he steps into it. He remembered his calling. Have you noticed that when David gets it right, he should be reminding us of another shepherd king, another servant king. He should always remind us of Jesus when he gets it right, when he does things well. That's where our minds should go. And our servant king, he did the same thing. His personal pain was not his priority. His personal glory while he was here on earth was not his priority. Look at what we read in Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now don't move too, pa- too fast past that. Does it say he enjoyed the cross? No. He endured the cross. Our king, King Jesus, the servant king, he endured the cross. It continues. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our King, King Jesus, remembered, always kept before him that he was a part of something bigger. It was never about his personal comfort, convenience, or pleasure. He was here to do a job. What was the job that he was here to do? It was here, he was here to redeem us. If you're here today and you've not heard that about Jesus, that he came and he paid the price for your sin and my sin, He did that by dying on a cross. He didn't like it. He didn't enjoy it. It was hard, but he endured for you and for me. And why did he do that? I love Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he did it. Jesus told the old Pharisee Nicodemus, he said, for God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in him, I would encourage you to do so, even where you sit. If you want to know more about it, come talk to me. Go talk to one of the people with a lanyard. They'll direct you to an elder or pastor. They'll help you themselves. But we would love for you to join this big family of God and be a part of something bigger. That's the gospel message. Jesus was the ultimate bridge builder. Now, when you do this, when you're in the family, when you're in God's family, you're going to receive an assignment, and it's a good one. It's a charge. It's a challenge, and it has two components. There's a burden, and there's a blessing. Did you catch David had a burden of responsibility? 
David, it's not all about you. That's kind of weighty. I'm going to emphasize that for a few minutes. And then we're going to close. We're going to look at the blessing. The blessing is, yeah, it's not all about me, but I'm part of something bigger. I'm part of something bigger. And that's exciting. So I'm going to invite you to make your way into the Gospels. We're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at three chapters in there. We're going to work backwards. So make your way to Matthew chapter 20 and look at verse 25 with me. What's happening here is James and John, the brothers, their disciples, they, uh, they want to do well in God's new, this new kingdom that he's bringing. They want to be important. And so they get their mama to go talk to Jesus for them. <laughs> they, they send their mom to ask him to give them a special seat in the house, so to speak. And Jesus hears about this, and he hears that the disciples are arguing And he sets them down and he says, guys, you need to understand my kingdom is a little bit different. The way things are going to work in our world, in my world, it's going to be different than what's happening in the world. So look at verse 25. Jesus is explaining a new perspective. He called them and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but you must, but you must be the servant And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man, that's his way of referring to himself. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying it's going to be a little bit different. He's saying in this this system, it's not the person that scrambles to the top and pushes everybody else down. It's the person who bows the lowest. It's sacrifice. It's service. Now, understand, we just shared the gospel. This isn't a prerequisite to be in the family. This is once you're in the family. We're going to talk about what that means. When you're in God's family, how this is even possible. But understand, this is the expectation. Sacrifice and service, the weight of responsibility, it's not the way that you're saved. It's not the way you maintain your salvation. But friends, it is the way of maturity. And that's the point that's being made. I'm going to ask you now to turn backwards to chapter 16. You know, it's a hard truth. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable, this whole idea of sacrifice and service. We're in an age and in a region in America that some people have called comfortable Christianity. It's a little bit of a shock to our system when we find out it's not all about me. It's not all about things being comfortable and convenient. And Jesus sometimes uses some pretty shocking words. In chapter 16, glance down at verse 24 with me. Jesus told his disciples, If you would come after me, let him deny, him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Take up a cross? Lose my life? That sounds tough. That sounds weighty. That's a burden. But what is Jesus doing? He's trying to get them to take a new perspective of life. Everyone else around them and everyone else around us, let's be honest, 
is thinking about this life from cradle to the grave to get as much as I can, to be as comfortable as I can, to have as much pleasure as I can, to have as many toys as I can. And Jesus is saying, that's not the plan. And he's using some shocking language, kind of like our mother with that precious little child, kind of like Joab. He's saying there is a responsibility and there is a weight. Now, at this point, you should be feeling it. I'm emphasizing it on purpose. Remember, it's a perspective change from cradle to the grave. Larry Crabb talks about it this way. He says, To live with no infinitely broader perspective than to live between my birth and my death is to live a wasted life, a life that fails to tell, now notice, God's larger story. I don't know how many years you're given. Had a grandfather that had a hundred had a cousin that died after birth. The rest of us are somewhere in between. But this life is only a chapter in the larger story. You're going to go on for eternity. And God is inviting us to understand that and to have a different perspective. Look as he continues on at verse 26. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There's nothing in this world you get to take with you. Or what will you give a man in return for his soul? Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, what he's calling us to is maturity. And part of maturity is delayed gratification. Part of maturity means we endure because of what's ahead. Remember, Jesus endured the cross. Okay, are you feeling it? Endurance, sacrifice, cross, joke. I kind of like it better when you talk about mercy and grace and, and God's love and, and the freedom that he offers us. I, I, I like that better too. There's a weight. There's a responsibility. And at this point, you should be saying, I can't do it. That's sacrifice, take up a cross. I, I can't do that. In the midst of pain, you want me to do What? I can't do that. You're right, you can't. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You can't do it. And this is where we transition from the burden into the blessing. And so I'm going to ask you to turn one last place in your Bibles. I want you to turn to Matthew 11. It's going to be a familiar passage to many of you. Matthew 11. If it's not a familiar passage, I would encourage you to make it familiar. Jesus says this, he says, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now wait a minute, Joe, you're talking out both sides of your mouth. You just talked about a cross and endurance and being a slave and serving others and sacrificing for others even when I'm hurting, that doesn't sound light. No, it's not. Do you know why it's, Jesus can call it light? Is notice, you're yoked with him. When you're yoked with Jesus, you're not the only one carrying the weight. The pain, the weight of the burden, it's real. Some of you today know exactly how real it is. The reason that you can bear the weight is because you are part of something bigger. And now here's the thing. If you've tuned me out, if you're asleep, 
come back and listen to this. You're a part of something bigger, but more important than that, something bigger is a part of you. Something bigger is a part of you. It's not just me saying it. Apostle John said it this way. He said, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Did you catch that? God is in you. You are not alone. When you're part of something bigger, something bigger is a part of you. The only way you can deal with the pain and the suffering of this world is by embracing this truth. Because life is going to be hard, and some of you got it really, really hard right now. I know of much of what's going on in our body, and it's tough. Some of you are grieving multiple losses. Some of you have relationship issues. There's financial issues. There's health issues. Some of us are dealing with the consequences of our past sins. Some of us, all of us, to one degree or another, are dealing with the consequences of others' sins. It's a tough world. The weather's crazy. The global economies and dynamics are crazy. There's all kinds of cultural things. You can't handle this unless you're part of something bigger and there's something bigger that's a part of you. Now, here's the beauty, okay? When you're a part of something bigger, when you engage pain, when you embrace this vision, every single trial is an opportunity. James put it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Now that word perfect and complete, don't get hung up on perfect. The idea is not perfect, lies in sinless, or you'll never have any problems, or everything's going to be smooth. That word perfect means mature. Mature. You're going to be complete. The idea is wholeness. The idea is wholeness. I think David remembered that. I think David remembered that he was a part of something bigger. I wonder if David remembered his own words that he wrote in Psalm 23. When Joab came and gave him that tongue lashing, I wonder if David remembered as he was about to lash out, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was called to be a shepherd king. It's not about me. And then, but wait, I'm part of something bigger. The Lord is my shepherd. I have a shepherd. I have someone in this with me. I'm not alone. I wonder if David pulled on that truth and he washed his face and he moved into the gate and he blessed his people. I wonder if that's what transformed him from the lowest point to one of the most amazing points I've ever seen in his life. Have you heard the phrase carpe diem? It's been around for about 2,000 years. Most of you probably know it from Dead Poets Society. It was a, a phrase in there. It's a popular tattoo. It means harvest the day, pluck the day, seize the day, is how it was talked about in the movie. It's kind of got some truth in it, but it's missing something. The biggest thing that's missing is the philosophy that it emerged from was from this man, Horace, who wrote it, this Latin author, Roman author. And his problem was that his belief was there was no afterlife. He said, seize the day, because this is it. Cradle to the grave. Get all you can. How sad. 
How sad if that's all there is, is from the cradle to the grave. Our word, our king, King Jesus, King David, what they, in char- they charge us to do, what the Father charges us to do, is to reach out and take on a new saying. And here's what I would give you, and I don't know the Latin for it. Embrace the vision. Embrace the vision. You're part of something bigger. Your pain, your failures, the sorrow, the sadness, none of that defines you. You're part of a bigger story. And God's writing His story through your life. It's amazing. It's hard. But you can endure when you lean upon Him. In Christ, our darkest day and our most difficult trials are redeemable. For God's glory, the good of others, because it's not all about me. And it's, when I do that, though, it's also redeemable for me. Because being mature is a whole lot better than writhing in that me-centric world of it's all about me. Because you're never satisfied. Embracing this vision is the way of life. That's why God commands it. I'm going to share one last verse with you. I'm going to ask you to write it down. I'm going to ask you to meditate on it this week. We're going to walk through it slowly. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. The first part is like this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, when I think about that passage and I start to meditate on it, I start thinking about this body, mine. It's 52 years old. Not too long ago, I had beautiful brown hair and I was a lot stronger. My outer man is wasting away. This is as good as it gets. It's downhill from here. Some of you understand, right? We're like an egg. Eggs can get dirty and crack, but what's happening inside? Life is growing. There are things that the Lord has freed me from. There are joys and peace that I know now, and I wouldn't trade it for the health and the strength or the hair. The outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. Chew on it. Meditate on it. Look at the next part. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How much time do you spend thinking about the things you can see? A lot. You know why? They're right here. The news is right here. Social media is right here. Your pain is right here. Your fear and anxieties, they're right here. Paul is encouraging us, look to the things that are unseen, the bigger picture. This life doesn't end at the grave. You're part of something bigger. It's eternal life that he offers, not temporary life. Every pain that you have in your life right now is temporary. Paul is encouraging us, Compare. Think about it. He finishes this way. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The unseen things are going to last forever. One of these days, every problem you have in your life is going to be a distant memory. Now, that's hard to get our heads around when the pain is right here. And I'm no way being flippant about the things that you're going through. But I'm telling you that if we don't embrace this vision, we will become slaves to our emotion. 
We have become slaves to our circumstances. The vision, this truth, this is what sets us free. This is what gives us the strength to endure when we reach out and we lean upon Him and not do it in our own strength. This isn't about pulling your bootstraps up. It's about being yoked with Jesus, catching the vision of that bigger, bigger story that you're a part of. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.